This is Unorthodox, and I'm Mark Oppenheimer. A very special episode for you this week. The story that we're going to tell this week is about somebody who seemed as far gone as could be, who it turned out was very, very capable of change. Eli Saslow is a reporter for The Washington Post, and in a recent book called Rising Out of Hatred, which was published in September, he tells the story of Derek Black, who was a white nationalist, and not just any white nationalist. He was like one of the white nationalists. He was helping to create the movement. He was the son of a major white nationalist, and he was the heir to this white nationalist family. He was a big deal. And as Eli Saslow tells it in this book, Derek Black went off to college and he met people who weren't like him. He met people who were not white nationalists. He even met liberals. And a very strange thing happened, the kind of thing that we don't think happens anymore, which is that he changed his mind a lot. We're going to interview Derek Black later in the show and hear about somebody who once really thought that white people were superior to blacks and Jews and the kind of people who listen to unorthodox changed his mind. But before we meet Derek Black, let's meet Eli Saslow, who tells his story so well in the book Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. Here we are talking to Eli Saslow a little while ago. We are here with Eli Saslow. He is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for The Washington Post and the author of the very excellent new book, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. Eli, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, Eli, this book is sort of astounding. You basically talk to Derek Black, essentially like the the heir to the white supremacist, white nationalist movement, and you really he lets you inside of his world and his and his journey away from it. Will you tell us a little bit about how you first discovered Derek, how you got him to talk to you, you know, the article and then and then the book? Yeah, sure. Um, I think also like that process reveals a little bit of the darkness that Derek sort of came from. Um, so I, I write for the Washington Post and I was writing a longer piece about Dylan Roof. Um, this was probably 2015. Uh, and he had, Dylan Roof had just um, committed this awful hate crime murder um, at a historically black church in Charleston, South Carolina, and had gone in and killed 10 people um, in the name of white supremacy. And Dylan Roof had spent a lot of time on this website called Stormfront, which, um, you know, for probably two decades running has been kind of the epicenter of um, hate, racism, anti-Semitism online. And so I went on Stormfront to begin to read the kind of things that Dylan Roof had been reading before he went into this church um, and committed this massacre. And they were saying horribly celebratory things about Dylan Roof on Stormfront. But the biggest message thread on the entire board at that time was about Derek Black, who I had never heard of before. And so I, I clicked on the thread and started to read and very quickly learned that Derek Black had been sort of the crown prince of this movement. Father Don Black was the head of the Klan in the United States for 10 years before starting Stormfront. His godfather is David Duke, you know, the most notorious anti-Semitic and racist politician of, of our, our modern times. Um, and they had sort of raised Derek to mainstream their ideas and to sort of 
push them further. And Derek, being really smart, had been disastrously successful at doing this. He'd invested himself fully in the ideology. He had his own radio show on the mainstream airways by the time he was 17 years old. He was elected to public office in Florida by the time he was 19. He was the keynote speaker at most of these white nationalist conferences around the country, telling people that the way ahead for their movement was through politics and through trying to reach out to more white Americans who had subtly racist or anti-Semitic ideas. And then Derek had gone to college um, and three years later had disavowed everything about this movement, had said that he'd made disastrous mistakes, also caused profound damage. And at this point, as I was first reading on Stormfront, he had disappeared. Um, He changed his name. He'd moved across the country. And what people on Stormfront were speculating about was what happened to change his mind and also how can we find him and what will we do to him uh, when and if we do find him. So at that point, I realized when I was done writing about Dylan Roof, I I also wanted to try to find Derek and figure out what had happened um, to turn the future heir to this movement uh, into somebody who was so strongly pitted against it. And how did he respond when you first reached out to him? Not well, um, which, uh, which as a journalist is like a reaction that, that I'm used to sometimes. I, mean, I, I think, first of all, it, it took a little work to track Derek down because he was trying not to be found. Um, so I think he was a little bit unnerved that I found him and probably that made him wonder if others would be able to find him. Um, but I think also at that point, you know, in addition to the risks to his safety, Derek still sort of naively thought that maybe um, maybe he could just leave all of these things in this box and, and move on with his life. Maybe these horrible seeds that he'd spent so much of his life planting would kind of stay in the ground and uh, nobody would know about them and he could kind of move on. Um, you know, and so initially Derek said, no, I'm not, I'm not ready to do this. I'm not ready to talk to anybody about it. But over the course of the next year, in, in addition to us sort of continuing to be in touch, I think the thing that really compelled him is that all, all of the things that he'd been saying on the radio, all of these ideas that he'd been spreading, he suddenly started to see them manifesting all around him, whether that was during the, the, the rhetoric around the presidential election of 2016 or anti-refugee rhetoric in Europe or the way people talked about the Black Lives Matter movement and policing in the country. And I think Derek felt in small ways culpable for, for some of the things that were happening. And, and I think he felt in huge ways terrified for, for sort of the, the power of, of some of these racist and, and anti-Semitic ideas. Um, and he felt like it was his responsibility to confront them, even when that was going to be you know, risky for him and, and uncomfortable. So it's interesting. He not just let you into his life. He actually let you into his like digital archive, right? A lot of the book is constructed of emails he'd sent. You could actually see his thinking change based on the emails he sent to his, his girlfriend, his friends. You also talked to his dad, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's um, it requires building up a huge amount of trust with somebody, which which often, frankly, is the cornerstone of my of my job as somebody who's trying to write in-depth stories about people's lives. I mean, I, I knew that for readers, I didn't I didn't want the experience of reading the book to be just Derek saying what had happened, which is not nearly as interesting as allowing hopefully readers a chance to feel like they are witnessing a change as it's happening. Um, And in order to do that, I needed the real-time documentation of the transformation, which in this case was like hundreds of pages of of Gchat text messages, not just from Derek, but also from all of the other students who in various ways began to impact his thinking. And that's a lot, that's a lot to ask for from people. Uh, So, you know, that's why, especially with a book like that, the act of of building that trust happens over over a year, two years, and it happens slowly. I mean, you know, the first time I I called Derek, he's not then saying, oh yeah, hey, I've got uh, 
3,000 pages of G-chats between me and my girlfriend during college. Would, would you like to see those? Um, you know, it's just, it's, a, it's eventually sort of helping people understand that by, by sharing all of these things, um, what they're really doing is they're doing greater justice to themselves because people will read about it in a true way as it really happened and not as in, in a way that an author is guessing sort of at what happened or trying to have even the people in, in the story recall what happened. Um, it just makes it a much livelier story, I hope. Um, and the, the same thing was true for Don. I mean, Derek's father. Going into this, um, I was really not sure how much participation uh, I would I would end up getting from Don. Um, he was uh, skeptical of me, certainly skeptical of my background. Um, yeah, all you, all you had to say is, hi, I'm Eli Saslow. Right, exactly. I mean, many, many conversations with Don, it felt like I was like taking an auditory genealogy test or it'd be like, where exactly is your family from? Uh, you know, what percent from here, what percent from there? Um, and you're like, I'm Jewish. <laughs> right, yeah. So Eli, what, what, was that like for you um, talking to people in the white nationalist movement? I mean, Don Black, the father, he has not renounced his views and he is still someone who thinks that Jews are a huge problem that has to be overcome. And he's still someone with tremendous sympathy for, you know, for those who would who would do harm to us and he might want to do harm to us himself. Was it difficult for you to interview him? Did you find that relationship tricky? Um, ultimately, however, he he kind of he seems to have warmed to you enough that he kept talking to you. Yeah, it was it was difficult. Um, I don't want to to dwell too much on how difficult it was for me because, of course, I think like so many of the things that the 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 actions that people around Derek took were much more difficult than going and spending time and and interviewing people. And the other thing is, although I was always cautious and would always let my wife know sort of where I was going, where I was spending time, and 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 when I would be back in touch, uh, I never felt at risk in terms of my own safety when I was around Don Black. Uh, he, you know. Although he spreads a rhetoric of horrific violence um, rooted in a history of bloodshed, um, he does not believe in himself, uh, at least in the last 30 years of his life, being being violent to other people. And so, you know, I, I never felt um, unsafe. I felt uncomfortable often. Um, you know, and the other thing is that I think for for Don Black, our conversations ended up. I think the reason he participated in the book to to a great deal is because he and Derek. Um, essentially don't have a, a relationship anymore. Um, and I mean, it was, it was, I was facilitating a conversation with his kid that he couldn't and didn't have anymore. And so I think the reason that Don continued to participate more and more um, is that, you know, reminiscing about Derek, who has been the most important person in Don's life, despite the heartbreak around that now, uh, it was pleasurable for him. Like talking about Derek was, was, he enjoyed the greater challenge, frankly, is you know, in writing something like this um, is also in honoring the complexity of that in the writing process and in making sure that in every in every sentence um, in every paragraph, I'm I'm holding Don Black and others like him accountable for for the real damage and hatefulness um, that they've spread. Uh, and I'm I'm not writing about them in a way that um, that forgives anything that they've done, because, frankly, Don Black, David Duke, others, they don't ask for forgiveness. They still believe these things. And so the challenge in this book with Don was writing about him as a, a real person who really loves his kid and is broken by his kid's change of heart and, and, and writing about him as a feeling full human being, sort of honoring his, his humanity in ways that that movement often fails to honor other people's humanity while still holding him accountable um, for, for, the, for the true horror that, that he's caused. 
Allison, in some ways, is the most intriguing character in this book because she starts dating Derek while he's still a, a full-on white nationalist. And she's um, she's a liberal. She's white, but she's a different kind of white person. Um, she's tolerant. She's liberal. She abhors white nationalism. And they start off as friends, and she then they become romantically involved and are still romantically involved, right? Right. Yeah, still, still together. Yeah, and, and I mean, so first of all, I guess two questions. One— how much cooperation did she give you? And and was it was it willing? Was it something she did, you know, because she felt that somebody had to tell her part of the story since she'd be in the book anyway? And then the second thing is, you know, I the one part of the story that I simply can't fathom is how she dated him for so long while he was still, you know, espousing Nazi ideology, to be quite frank. Um, are you still I, I'm still baffled by her. Everyone else, I kind of get their journey, whether I empathize or not. I totally get it. Her, I'm still baffled by. Yeah, that's that's really a really interesting uh, point because I think honestly, Allison is still baffled by herself too. Um, you know, and, and initially, Allison, I first wrote a long piece about Derek for the Washington Post, um, and Allison was very helpful. Like she she shared some of her emails. Uh, I spent time with her, but she did not want to participate publicly. I think because she still feels many, she has many of the same questions about herself. I think she still wonders like, was I was I naive in in believing that this was going to turn out well, which of course it did, but that was not, that was, there was no guarantee. I mean, she wonders, you know, was I, was I being permissive? Um, you know, I think she has a lot of the same questions about her own, her own actions in college. And, um, you know, I, I think where sometimes Allison doesn't give herself enough credit is that she, you know, she had spent a lot of time around Derek before she started dating him, really even before she started befriending him. I mean, at first, her roommates, Matthew and Moshe, had begun inviting Derek over to these Shabbat dinners, and Allison had stayed in her room out of protest. I mean, she thought this was a terrible idea. Um, but she saw Derek coming back to these dinners again and again, uh, showing up sometimes with a bottle of kosher wine, not saying anything offensive. Um, and she just got really curious. She was like, how is it possible that this person is like interpersonally kind and empathetic with people that his ideology dehumanizes and then yet can go on the radio and say these terrible things. Um, and Allison, who now is like a PhD psychologist uh, and who's sort of fascinated by people and what makes them work, just decided she wanted to figure Derek out. Um, you know, and I think by the time she found herself falling in love with him, she felt like this is a this is a good person who somehow has like disassociated from from having these really terrible ideas. Um, and she held herself off from having a relationship with him until she felt confident that his his mind was changing. And um, but I also think, frankly, the intensity of their debates about this stuff, which which were often really personal and really wounding, the intensity of, of those conversations probably fueled an intensity in the relationship. I think, you know, in, in the way complicated relationships work, and they're often complicated, although this one extraordinarily so, um, you know, I think sort of the transformation process and the building of the relationship probably went together in some ways. Um, so in the end, Allison ended up participating super fully. She also her and Derek spend most of their time together. So that meant, you know, I've spent hundreds of, of hours with, with Allison and, and fortunately so, because she's, you know, she's really smart and perceptive about um, the psychology of some of this stuff in addition to like her own role in it. Can you tell us about the Shabbat dinners? Because the most amazing thing is everyone in college shuns Derek once they find out his background, except for these two Jewish kids who continue to invite him to Shabbat dinner. They're the only people on campus who reach out to him. 
Yeah, I mean, it's really uh, a stunning act by, by these two kids, Matthew and Moshe, who remain close friends um, with, with Derek. You know, and even more amazing because, you know, the damage that Derek had, had done and, and that this ideology had done was so real to them. Uh, Moshe in particular is, you know, he comes from a family of Hungarian Jews that was all but wiped out at Bergen-Belsen. Um, and, and Moshe had spent a lot of his youth learning that history and traveling back to the concentration camp and, and you know, also like becoming fascinated with modern day anti-Semitism and people like David Duke and Don Black. And then by pure coincidence, here comes their next future leader sitting next to him in a first year math class. And somehow Moshe finds it in himself not to, not to drop the class, not to shun Derek, um, but to start building a relationship with him. And I think for, for Moshe and Matthew, their initial idea was, look, instead of building a case against Derek, let's just try to build a friendship, to build a relationship with him, hoping that maybe at some point he will be able to begin seeing past the stereotypes and, and all of the horrible things that he'd, he'd said about Jews. Uh, and he will instead start seeing the people, us. Um, you know, and, and it took incredible amounts of patience because Matthew and Moshe what they didn't do at first was talk to Derek about white nationalism. And, and it sort of ended up being this, this sort of awkward arrangement at first where it was the gigantic elephant that sat on the table, but nobody talked about it. And they talked about school and world history and religion and what was happening all around them without talking about white nationalism, because Matthew and Moshe thought, if we confront Derek too early on, he's not going to come back. And then, like, what good will we have done? So they prioritized this idea of building a relationship, making that feel fairly solid, and then beginning to have conversations about some of, some of the, the real issues that had brought them together in the first place. Eli, we're out of time, but thank you so much. This is The, the book's extraordinary. Eli Saslow, the book is Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. In 10 seconds, any idea where, where do you think Derek's going to be 10 years from now? I think he'll be pushing back against this stuff. I mean, he spent the summer working at, at Facebook trying to help them deal with, with the rise of, of extremism and, and hate online. Uh, you know, but he's also a great medievalist who now speaks four languages. So somehow he'll, he'll probably find a way to combine those two things. <laughs> Eli Saslow, thank, thank you, you so much for being uh, on Unorthodox. My pleasure. Thanks, all of you. Appreciate the work. Take care. Take care. Thanks, Eli. That was Eli Saslow, who was kind enough to wake up very early in Portland, Oregon, to talk to us here on the East Coast a few weeks back. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y.
Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. I'm sure you'll agree that after hearing him talk about Derek Black, the thing that you want to do is meet Derek Black. That's what we wanted. And so we sent our producer, Shira Telushkin, to the Midwest, where Derek Black now lives as a full-time graduate student. They sat down for a multi-hour conversation just two weeks after the Pittsburgh shooting, five days after the 2018 midterm elections. So when they talked, this stuff was very much in the air. The country was filled with conversation about anti-Semitism and white nationalism and what Trump means and all of that. In this fairly edited version, you're going to hear Derek's feelings about what he feels responsible for and what he doesn't feel responsible for and why, despite being kind of reticent and wanting to get on with his life, he feels some responsibility to talk about his past. Now, just a few facts that you should bear in mind. His father wasn't just any white nationalist. He was the founder of Stormfront, which is basically the biggest white supremacist website you'll ever find. Like in that community, that's the website that you go to. I wouldn't recommend you check it out, but you can find it. It's still there. Interestingly, when Derek was ready for college, he chose New College in Florida, which is a public school, and it's kind of an alternative liberal artsy college. So when he was there, he met lots of people, including Jews who befriended him and began inviting him to Shabbat dinners, and including a girl named Allison, whom he developed a crush on and eventually began dating. And she stuck by him through a long while when he was still in white nationalism, which was something she totally disapproved of. And if you can believe it, they're still together now. When Derek got to New College, people didn't know about his past, and they didn't for quite a while. But eventually he was outed, and that really pushed him toward kind of a crisis point. You'll hear a bit from him about how he evolved completely out of white nationalism and what he believes now in this interview with Shira Telushkin. Have a listen. There's a lot of hand-wringing on the left over, like, should we call some ideas racist? Should we condemn ideas? In some ways, you've, you've sort of become the point person that people go to to learn more about the movement. And it seems like you feel an obligation to be like, oh, no, it's problematic. <laughs> like, yeah. no hand-wringing. 
it's somewhat bad, I think, that anyone needs to play that role. It's a, it is incredible that we have trouble identifying white supremacy playing out in normal mainstream ways because it's always done that. It's not something that started in 2016. It's you know the legacy of American history. You would think that that would be not a problem for the Times or CNN to say, right? It's not saying anybody's a bad person because you're born into a system that plays out this way, but you do recognize that it hurts people, you know? Did you ever personally apologize to people? Everybody who I knew personally, yes. How do you apologize? Um, with difficulty, and it always, like, if you ever apologize for somebody for something big, it feels like it's, like, meaningless at the time, but I think it has some significance. And with Matthew, who hosted the Shabbat dinners, it was sort of funny because we never talked about it over those years. Like, he took this tack of, I'm just never going to bring this up, and I... Likewise, never brought it up, and so we talked about everything else. And it was only after I had actually renounced white nationalism uh, and like came back a year later that we went out to a bar and we were talking about like how his course studies were going. And then we were like, "Oh, we should talk about this." And we had this moment where he, where we had to, he wanted to clarify that like, yes, he has always known that my family is white nationalism, and he read Stormfront, and he knew my listen to the radio, and he knew what I was advocating. And just to be clear that he was not naive on these things, I was like, yeah, I, I was aware you did, you knew all this, and he's like, well, I just want to like zero out the scale there. So like, you guys had like legitimately never discussed it. That sounds mind-blowing to me. Yeah, 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 well, I don't know. Maybe it's weird, but... (laughs) So, right, so he wanted you to know, like, that he had chosen these weekly dinners and your friendship with that knowledge. We both knew the whole time that the other one knew everything. And then what did you say? just verbalizing it. Um, I said that I, like, recognize now quite what a heroic act that is, then I still don't feel that I would make this decision. You know, if I were dealing with somebody who is actively advocating for oppression of people like me that had real consequences for me and my family and friends and stuff, that I would be like, oh, you know, you can keep doing that and I won't talk about it, but I'll have you over to dinner in the hopes that... You sort of rethink this because you see that the people you're talking about are, you know, me and you like me. And like that's sociologically a quite interesting tactic that he took and clearly was quite effective. But I don't know that I would make that choice. So that was a lot of what we talked about. Derek had been discussing Jews for most of his life. But college was the first time he got to know Jews. And there were surprises. One aspect is you don't know somebody's Jewish until they tell you frequently. And so white nationalism thinks that it's some sort of overriding identity that is like uh, by eyesight. And that's not the case most of the time. You can know somebody for several months and and not know they're Jewish. Like it's clearly not uh, an overriding identity for every person. If it is, it is not something that predicts much about them. You know, this is not something that tells you what their politics are going to be, what their thoughts are going to be, or how they feel Mm -hmm. about things. And so if you have some belief system that really believes that there's something you can strongly predict about people by by their their identity and that's not true it's quite Mm -hmm. difficult for it was difficult for me to maintain that and it's also helpful that there are small white nationalist groups that think jewish people are white and should not be excluded from it and are not anti-semitic and so yeah yeah, right and so so there was a community that i could very quickly say oh this is align with them and at the same time i still thought race was super real the way i started looking at it at that point 
was that you know most of America has decided that light-skinned Jewish people are white, and that seems probably accurate. Like when we classify all our fears about racial mixing, Jews should share fears with us as opposed yeah. to with other groups. And it also helps that there's lots of Jewish people who do. <laughs> That's the argument of the white nationalists who want Jewish members because they say, like, there's so many Jewish people who do not want Central American immigrants here, who do not want African immigrants, who are, like, all about we only should have Europeans coming. to Like, there's so many Jewish people who believe that. Like, why are you excluding them? They believe everything you believe. They just want you to not be anti-Semitic. It's not so much to ask. Like, that's, that's the argument of and the, the pro-Jewish And the rest of the movement who are against that kind of more, that belief, what do they say? Are they like, no, but they're actually secretly plotting? Yeah, yeah no, that's their answer. Okay, they, they're they like, say, you've been hoodwinked by yeah, the Jews. Yeah, they say they're pretending. They say that they're pretending to be white supremacists, and they're going to come in, and then they're once they're like on your board, they're going to secretly convince you that you're wrong or something, which... Kind of happened to you? Oh, yeah, that's funny. It's not very real, right? If you're actually hanging out with people who you're learning about their life, you're like, yeah, people are people. This is the most conspiracies are stupid. You know, mm-hmm. like this falls into the same kind of like there's lizards under the earth and the moon landing didn't happen. Like you're just you're not going by what the evidence is. And people are way too heterogeneous to pull off these kind of conspiracies. But like, why do people think Jews want multiculturalism? There's like historical reasons that largely come from the success of the Nazi movement in the early 20th century. But the modern incarnation in America and Europe, I I think it's pretty fairly, you can lay it on Kevin McDonald's books, uh, who is a professor in the UC system. He used to be a professor in the UC system. Okay, what's uh, like one of his was main an, books? He was an evolutionary psychologist. And he wrote this series of books called The Culture of Critique, where he makes this argument that Jewish people over the millennia have evolved in order to look more like Western Europeans and have also evolved to have behaviors they may not be even be aware of to try to undermine the homogeneity of Western European countries so that they will look Western European based on like this chameleon evolution and then they might not even know why they're doing it. They're like pushed by their genes and his argument is that Western Europeans have a tendency to act quite oppressively and violently to people who are not part of their group. So Jewish people are threatened even if they have somewhat integrated into the community so that Jewish people are safer if they live in a multiracial, multicultural country where mm. there's lots of different ethnicities that have political power and political influence. Which is kind of true. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's also funny when I like, go to uh, some event and like um, a, a Jewish person will walk up and say, could you explain the, the conspiracy? And I say, well, you know, the conspiracy is that Jewish people like send money to organizations to help for refugee resettlement and they help black civil rights organizations to try to advocate for anti-racist laws and like that's the conspiracy and, and they'll, they'll, frequently they'll be like usually liberals at these kind of events and they'll be like oh well I do that you know like, right. <laughs> so, so like, the response will be like could you go convince them that I'm not doing it out of hatred of anyone I'm doing it because I think those people are getting a raw deal like is that a, a worldview they could have Derek emphasizes the centrality of anti-Semitism in white nationalism, which is why he calls Matthew and others heroic for inviting him to Shabbat meals. But just becoming friends with Jews didn't turn him off from white nationalism. Instead, he found fringe groups that redrew the boundaries so that white Ashkenazi Jews 
fit into their ideology. He didn't really start to doubt the movement until he was forced to be uncomfortable by directly confronting the harm and hate he was promoting. This is why the New College protests are also central to this story. I have tried to always be very clear that it is not a matter of inviting people to dinner and talking and then it's good. In my story, and I think in all the cases where this happens, there is maybe more important background where there's a community assertion of condemnation of the beliefs and people who somehow are connected to you know, me or whoever we're talking about are saying that what you're doing is harming me, what you're doing is totally wrong. And the form that takes is you know, protest, it is ostracism, it is condemnation. And that was the whole context for why I showed up at the Shabbat dinners. Because you had like no other friends. I mean, yeah, on some level, right? Nevertheless, I could have just hung out with white nationalists and I did this a bit. I would like, oh, I'll be as much extreme white nationalist and good Mm -hmm. at it as I can be. So part of the result of the condemnation made you... um, Retrench. Right. Do even more white nationalist stuff. But I still came back because I was committed to finishing the degree. And that meant that I was also a part of this community that I'd gotten to know. Matthew, who I already knew from before, Mm -hmm. he knew my background, invited me to the Shabbat dinners. And I knew him. I knew it would be um, a comfortable enough place. I thought I might get confronted, but, you know, that wasn't new. And so I went. And the more surprising thing was that I went for like two years and that I ended up engaging on it. But I really don't think that that would have happened had there not been widespread condemnation. If I had gone to some large, you know, state school that had 50,000 or 100,000 people or whatever, I, the reaction would not have been as unilateral. It would not have been by hundreds of people who I knew because it was such a tiny community that was really committed to anti-racism. And there would have been, to be very, very blunt, there would have been a lot of people who supported my beliefs and I could have hung out with them and it wouldn't have been as clear that there was this kind of condemnation. And I don't think I would have engaged in the same way had it not been the fact that I could see all these people who were clearly reeling from what I was doing. So, so like this community condemnation is the key. And I think it's also what most people can do because most people can't invite uh, whoever to dinner. They're not friends with this person and they can't do that. Most of what you can do day to day is assert what your values are. And then in these individual cases, talk to people. Most of the time, they're not going to be so extreme. That's going to be that, you know, your cousin who thinks that immigrants are dangerous and you like spend some time talking to that cousin at Thanksgiving dinner. That's very similar to what Matthew was doing, just not as like dramatic. So you and Allison have been together now for seven years, and obviously, at least the part of your relationship that is now so public is the ways in which she was like almost angelically patient in working through beliefs you had, which for a long time were still like pretty terrible. Did that ever cause an imbalance in the relationship? I guess so. Um, There were moments where she had more power, and I guess that I had more power at different points, like at some points. Um, We were very committed to each other. However, it's not going to work if I'm advocating this. However, I would never stop advocating white nationalism because of that. Like it would take actually believing it's wrong. 
on her end, I think she still has qualms about whether it was the right thing to do or whether she should have participated in the ostracism more firmly than she did. Most of like my serious girlfriends in life were white nationalist girls who grew up in white nationalist families, but like dated people who weren't and who knew about it and just like let it go because like what are they going to do? And you know like think of it as quite so serious. So it was fairly notable that Allison would clearly consider dating except for this is a terrible belief mm. system that you're participating in so that was like a notable moment in the same way that new college's condemnation was a notable moment but then after i renounced it we kind of went to this naive normal where we just never talked about race again for two years um and now it's sort of back to i have this platform and so i do stuff that takes up too much of our conversation mm-hmm. so we're always trying to figure out like is that me stuff and so me stuff shouldn't dominate because we talk each night just normal conversation you don't want one person's stuff to be the whole conversation and there's this kind of question is uh, if i talk about an interview i did or somebody who sent an invitation is that me stuff is that us stuff after you went public you then talk about how you all you wanted to do was like flee and like hide and yeah. not talk about this. And did that come out of shame? What motivated that desire? I sort of trauma because it's very uncomfortable. Like that's an understatement to completely rethink, you know, some of the ground philosophies that you established when you were growing up and then just identify that those were wrong, but it's way worse if those things were literally causing people harm and you either didn't care or didn't recognize it or denied it or whatever. And so to look at it and say, okay, I spent like 20 years advocating things that, you know, objectively made the world worse off. And I didn't know what to do with that because you can't take it back because ideas and things I've said and done and in spaces, even if I was never advocating violence, have literally inspired people to violence. And so my main instinct was that I'm not going to help anything by talking about this more. And, you know, I wanted to avoid discussing it. I was sort of hoping that it was just going to fade away on its own, which I recognize is quite naive and I think was more motivated by my... It sounds like shame. I guess so. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It depends on, like, definitely shame in ways that it affected friends, people I knew. But it almost feels like it's not a big enough word when I'm talking about damage I've, like, done to the country. Like, that's in ways that are not interpersonal and, like, here's my friend who I harmed in by, mm. by action and, and, and word. I've spent three years after I renounced not talking to anybody and I adopted my middle name and I was for a while most of the people in like graduate studies I didn't think knew about my background and I was trying to just like focus on medieval history because that was something that the contemporary culture didn't pay as much attention to and so I could feel like I was siloed off into some other space Uh, And so getting into talking about these issues again feels like it always has to have some reason. It was clear that white nationalist ideas were not going to fade away with time, and so there's some obligation on anyone who has a platform to talk about them. We then turned to the reaction on campus when Eli made his story public. 
at that point, I was three years out from renouncing it, so I was still absolutely mortified of talking about it explicitly, so I'd allude to it in a really weird way. As I say, like, oh, you know, like like uh, problematic beliefs that American conservatives frequently have. I was raised in sort of a home with racist ideas. But by the time the book came out, the article had already come out my first quarter. Did it kind of feel came like being out? it again? Yeah, yeah, totally. A bunch of people who I'd gotten to know over the previous three years, I sent it to them so I could say, here, read this 6,000 word article and let's talk about it. And so the conversations by that point were not about like, how did you leave white nationalism? It was more questions of like, what does it mean for you now? Do you still think about this stuff? Like a whole string of interactions for several weeks. Usually positive, especially if they're white people. It's like, oh, it took a ton of bravery and like, what a, what a good story. And I'm really glad you did that. And then I wrote an op-ed and so they read that. People of color were like rightly more suspicious and I still think like more suspicious in the sense that like, do you want like a prize for not advocating white nationalism? And I try to like clarify, no, this is not like, I really don't want this to be some sort of white hero story. I kept thinking back to the Jewish concept of tshuva or repentance. There are some acts whose consequences are so far-flung that the scope of victims can never be identified, and the harm one did can never truly be undone. There's just no path for full repentance. Derek's contributions to white nationalism are baked into the foundation of the movement. As the movement grows, so does the harm he has done to the world. He can't escape that. Instead, he has to constantly ask himself what limits, if any, exist on his moral obligation to make amends. Does it just like pain your heart that your dad is still... Still doing it? I mean, yes, especially because if I think that it's quite guilt-inducing that messages that I helped craft were what persuaded the Pittsburgh shooter... Uh, like the fact that he is still advocating them is like, I really wish he would stop. It's, it's, I don't know, discouraging if there's things that I can't stop or fix, right? I try to push back on stuff, but I can't change most things in any dramatic, immediate way. I try, if we're talking about stuff and he'll assert something, I try to give the opposing argument and why that's uh, not the right way to think about this and uh, say that, you know, this is causing great deal of, of damage to people and like talk about that sort of stuff. But I'm not, like, I don't, wouldn't presume to try to change his mind and I don't know that you can. Uh, I'm not positive if you've spent your entire life committed to something, I think the stakes before changing your mind become higher. If you renounce something just psychologically, it makes it means like nothing you ever did was worthwhile, which feels like an insurmountable hurdle as opposed to even even if you just became more quiet about pushing it, like if you started having some kind of doubts and you just became more quiet about pushing it, that feels like a more likely outcome for people who have really committed their entire lives to something. Yeah, but it sounds like you feel like your dad, if anything, his views have become almost more radical. Yeah, and I, 
uh, like he's an independent thinker, but I think he's also influenced by the political moment. And like he watches Tucker Carlson each night, sometimes twice, because he thinks that Tucker Carlson is advocating white nationalist messages in ways that are more palatable and have receive a wider readership and listenership than he has been able to do over decades. So he, he studies Tucker Carlson to think about ways to advocate for white nationalism in a more effective way. And I'm positive it affects him that the most watched television show on cable is advocating his message uh, in ways that he thinks are more persuasive than he's been able to do. Like this that, is the moment his whole yeah, life level, has been waiting for. It would be for. even more stupid for him to say white nationalism is wrong because like more people are saying it's right than have in his lifetime. Do you think our only hope is to have places like Stormfront shut down? I mean, that's weird and hard to answer, right? Because I spent so much of my life with watching my dad fighting DDoS attacks and trying to keep it up. This is the community I grew up in, like that was genuinely people who I cared a lot about. I once took a road trip where I would just come to a town and I would cold call people who were members of Stormfront and say, you know, I've never met you, but mind if I stay on your couch? And then I'd hang out with them. There's just like genuine, real, normal human connections, whereas people have normal lives. And on that level, I just like, you know, quote unquote, good people, right? Uh, you know, that's, that's the, the weirdness where like Trump is looking at the white nationalists talking about the very fine people. And I'm like, on some level, I'm like, well, some of them, you know, are kind of nice. If you're not like a black person, if you shut down their community, you don't necessarily change their minds, but you also don't want a place where they can radicalize themselves. But again, it's existed before the internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so... Probably the answer is all technology spaces should not allow any sort of white nationalism or white supremacy to promote itself. There's also probably an answer that they shouldn't try to hunt down people and find out if they're not advocating for it, if they're not saying it, if they're living their lives, because then maybe you have opportunities for them to interact with people who are not white nationalists. I'm interested a little bit in the role of women in white supremacy. Multifaceted. It is 100% true that the leadership and most of the like rank and file people who show up to things are men. Then you have a few prominent women who want to get involved and then they're and then you start having conversations that almost sound like white nationalist feminism because you'll have these debates about if there's any problem with having a woman be the spokesperson and there's a lot of people who legitimately say that they you know of course women should be in leadership roles like as long as they're white women one of the things that was discussed in the Stormfront moderator forums is whether it was acceptable to create a women's only section on Stormfront. And the debate was like, is this going to be some sort of feminist discussion area where they talk about, you know, how to destroy the family? Uh, you know, if we don't want that, right? Like, we have to have families. Uh, and then some people saying, well, you know, not every woman is going to be a mother. Like, if they're talking mm -hmm. in a space about how to further their careers, how has that hurt this movement? Like, they're just going to be more successful people not everybody can do this like the compromise they ended up creating it but the the ultimate sticking point was like do women need to have a specific space for themselves like what's the problem with men and the ultimate decision was that yes there's something about like men's behavior that women needed to have somewhere within white nationalism that they would not be 
across hmm. it. So like the real answer is white women are are great at white nationalism. Uh, when they're involved, they intuitively get it. They're some of the best at it. They're some of the best at messaging. Like white women who are receptive to white nationalism are very much committed to the idea that their families themselves, their community is better off if everybody around them is white. And when you have a big group of white women saying this, it, it sort of makes it harder for people to look at it and say, oh, you know, you're a bunch of idiot men who are advocating violence because the, the white nationalist women are always very clear about their opposition to violence, whereas white men tend to be kind of stupid about it. They'll say, like, the, uh, like there are plenty of people who congratulated the Pittsburgh shooter, and you know, people have to go and delete those posts because that's not the message that they want to anyone to see. And when white women are involved, they're a lot more clear about not being disgusting like that. As we continue talking about how the movement recruits people, we wound up talking about some of the deeper conspiracies you find around members, including lizard people. Tons of people believe that. That there's lizards under the earth. Yeah, yeah, no, you should research it. There's a widespread, oh, okay. a widespread global conspiracy that there are lizard people who live beneath the crust of the earth and they control world leaders with telepathy. Okay. But like you were never one of them. No, I, I think I'm more aware of it than you are because uh, white nationalists are adjacent to people who believe that. Okay. And so like as a leader of it, I was always trying to make sure that people who believe there were lizards never got into our group or like in the leadership position. You're just like, oh, it's another lizard person. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. you're making us look bad. Yeah, no, exactly. I put together a thing to try to teach committed white nationalists better ways to talk about white nationalism. Like we organized a guy to speak. I think it was titled, you can only believe one crazy thing. Uh, and so the lesson to all these organizers was, you know, I'm being facetious here. We believe that race is biological and that Jewish people are controlling the world. That is a crazy thing to believe in the wider like perspective and the wider widely held beliefs. You, that's the only crazy thing you're allowed to believe as an activist for this movement. You may not also believe that we never landed on the moon. You may not also believe that there are lizard people under the earth. You may not also believe that the moon is hollow and that there is like an ancient species of people who live inside that. And these are all things that people currently believe in in large numbers. And those conspiracy theories are adjacent because when you start getting outside of the mainstream, all the like people who are outside of the mainstream are like bumping up against each other. And so he gave this talk. You may privately believe whatever you want, but you may not tell anyone that you think there are lizard people under the earth. We have to commit to one crazy thing. Maybe you can convince them that like, there's a Jewish conspiracy. You can't convince them that you also think there are lizard people. Right, like stay in your lane. Yeah, you will lose them. We then got on to faith and white nationalism, especially because so many people conflate conservative white Christian groups with white nationalism. It is very fair to say white nationalism is an atheist movement, but that's not a requirement. There's something that makes you different if you're a part of white nationalism than if you're an evangelical who thinks that immigration's bad. Like you, have, you apparently believe the same things, but you're different groups. And you can see that in terms of religion. You can see that in terms of conspiracy theories around anti-Semitism. And so the overlaps are there, but like they're a distinct group of people. The religious things that happen within the explicit like white supremacist movement are very odd. Things like Christian identity, which is uh, an offshoot of British Israelism that believes that the, the 12 tribes immigrated from Israel and settled in Ireland and England and Northwestern Europe, and that the people who are called Jews today are these like pretenders who came from Turkey or somewhere. So they follow kosher dietary laws. Wait, there's white supremacists who keep 
kosher? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because they think that people who call themselves Jews are not really We're, Jews, okay. and that white Europeans are the true 12 tribes of Israel. As the reluctant media point person for the inner workings of Stormfront and the white nationalism psyche, Derek gets the same questions often. Everybody in the world has asked me if when Donald Trump said I'm a nationalist, was he actually talking to the white nationalist movement You're and trying like, to signal? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, number one, like, I'm not in his head. Uh, and number two, does that even really matter? What do we know he's signaling? We know he's signaling that he identifies with whatever nationalism means in the 21st century. And we mm -hmm. also know that nationalism is deeply tied to race. White nationalism is an international movement that has just as much um, growth and writing in Europe as it does in the United States. White nationalists call themselves nationalists because of the meaning that uh, they took from like their European counterparts. I think what's interesting there is like white nationalism does mean a specific movement, White supremacy is kind of like a broader term that just means like feelings. Or yeah, that's the way like I racism. use it. I, think, yeah. I don't want to tell everybody terminology, but just yeah. I think white nationalism means a political movement. And I think white supremacy means like the world order where white people have economic advantage over yeah. darker skinned people. Even if the questions are repetitive, Derek still feels the obligation to keep taking interviews. Frequently, there's some unknown good that comes from having a conversation like that. And if I say no to it because I need to be grading papers or something, then it's like, am I like somehow affecting the future course of, of events, you know? <laughs> like, did I just like do something wrong there, you know? Right. No, you have this burden and you're going to carry kind of forever. So now, as we wrapped, Derek Black son of the man who founded Stormfront, had the chance to ask us a question as our Gentile of the week. I guess, uh, like, we talk about, like, anti-Semitism and, like, things changing after the Pittsburgh attack. And even though the Pittsburgh attack wasn't really new, and I think most people who go to synagogues are aware of synagogue attacks that have happened over the years, and this one's more public and recent and large, but, like, these things have always been a concern, and synagogues all over the world have armed guards outside their doors and have for years and years. But we still talk about anti-Semitism as being different from other sorts of othering and other sorts of, like, ostracism of people. And so, I guess... I would ask the like entire Jewish community, <laughs> like growing up as a Jewish person, there's this experience that like you don't have if you don't grow up as that. And I guess I wonder whether people who grow up with that ever think about like, I wish that hadn't happened. You know, I wish that I could like disappear into the wider thing and not be a part of a, a group of people who are like identified who have to have armed guards outside the door, but it's, you're losing something of yourself if that happens. So you, it's not just a choice you make. I can't even imagine like there must be these moments where it like occurs to somebody who grows up in a society where like stuff would be easier if you could disappear in the way that Irish people disappear. And even Irish people still have stuff that holds them back because of historical reasons, right? But like, could disappear and just be a part of like the dominant supremacist group and never have to think about it. You know, <laughs> is this like a secret desire that people have? It's hard not to hear the pain behind Derek's question. Derek clearly realizes that he can never again go silent about who he was, as he had first hoped. Who he was is bound up in who he is today. 
In some ways, it's clear he wants to escape the burden of this identity, though that desire for escape comes with guilt. We talked about how, in America today, the legacy of anti-Semitism more often inspires Jewish pride rather than Jewish flight, though that was not true for much of history. Derek knows the power of the world he helped build, and he's learning how much power he has now to help stop it. As we ended, I asked him if he had hope for the future. I do think on a fundamental level, like, People don't aren't motivated by who can I destroy. They're like, who can I love? Yeah. And the who can I destroy kind of gets attached to it. And so optimistically, like I fundamentally believe that the definition of who's your in-group is so flexible that anybody could be in your in-group. Like there's no skin color or height or gender or anything that means that there's anybody who's so different like they couldn't be like in your thing. They, there's a lot that goes on there and you need to have commonality and culture and all that, but like on a theoretical level, there's no human right. that couldn't be in your, in your, your pack. Um, and I think that's true. And I think your need to identify others while, you know, it exists, you always have to identify others, your need to destroy them is not, not inherent, like, you don't have to do that. And so, like, there's a world where people include most everybody in their pack, and the ones that aren't there, they just don't, they don't, they don't try to destroy them. That was Shira Telushkin talking with Derek Black at his home in the Midwest. I guess before I say goodbye, I have to answer his Gentile question of the week. And um, gosh, it's a really hard one. Um, I think I would answer it two ways. And then I hope that all of you out there in listener land, in the J Crew, will tell us what you think. But here's my answer. The first is um, that there are definitely times when I wished that I was just like white American, by which I think I meant Protestant white American, that there's something that that it would be fun to be the person who feels most at home in this country, to like not be the immigrant. And, and growing up in, in small town New England, there were definitely times when like, sure, it, I mean, it's, it's a version of Christmas envy. And then going to a fairly preppy, waspy prep school – you know, I loved it and I never in the least bit felt oppressed or othered, but there was this this core of kids who had, you know, these very Anglo last names and had families from from Greenwich or parts of Long Island where the old old families have them and or or on Nantucket and they just there was a sense of entitlement and belonging that I really envied of just like pure ease in who they were. And and that was something that I marveled at and was kind of in love with. But even then, if you'd said, do I want to disappear as a Jew? I would have said no, because I, I liked myself too much. My, my ego is too strong. My sense that nothing that's part of me could be all bad or worth disappearing is pretty strong. And now I've moved to this other place where I would say that um, I think it's it's interesting to be Jewish. I have friends who have told me that they wished they could be Jewish or black or or Italian or Pentecostal or whatever, because whatever they are, be it some sort of like Protestant tradition they've lost touch with or some sort of like three generations ago, we were Irish Catholic, but now we're just white people. It feels a little boring to them. I'm not saying it's boring. I I think there could be deep riches in any family and its legacy. But 
I know that nobody thinks my tradition is boring now, least of all me. It's it's cool to be part of something. Um, you know, my people have stuck with this thing for a lot of generations when it would have been easy uh, to leave it. And then I guess the last part of it is I kind of think all parts of the tradition, uh, including but not just the religion, are really, really interesting. And I, I want to I want to go deeper on them as I get older. I've kind of just fallen in love with the stuff as it is. So yeah, there's my answer. I'd love to hear what you think about that or about our interviews with Eli Saslow and Derek Black. Unorthodox is produced by Josh Cross, Shira Telushkin, and Noah Levinson. It's edited by Sophia Steinert-Evoy. Sophia and Josh both did extraordinary work on this week's episode. As ever, we are a production of Tablet Magazine. You should read the thoughtful, interesting, and charming articles posted every day at tabletmag.com. Our editor is Alana Newhouse. Our executive editor is Wayne Hoffman. And our show is produced at Argo Studios in the Flatiron District of New York. Argo has no past for which it has to atone. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.